Hello, and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm very excited today to be joined by comedian and the host of The Wet Spot on Compound Media and the Christy Mayer podcast, which is consistently in the top 200 on iTunes. Chrissy, welcome. Woo! I'm so happy to be here. This is great. I'm so happy to have you here. This is great. Oh, look at all this. I'm in the logo. Yeah, you look like you're reporting from a secret sexy lair. I am. It's called my bedroom. Yeah, it's a sex, <laughs> secret sex lair. Yeah. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Uh, we just met recently and yeah, in person. in person for the first time ever. Yeah, in Austin. And I got to come to your show. And I have to say, I was blown away. I haven't seen a lot of comedy in a while. And I was shocked at what you and your fellow comedians from Compound Media were able to get away with on stage. Cause wow. I, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You guys were so funny and you didn't seem to have any uh, fears or, and maybe you do have fears and you just push past them, but you didn't have to seem to have any fears or any self-censorship going on. And I know we've talked a lot about on, on our show on unsafe space about wokeness, social justice ideology and the way that it, it sort of, causes people sometimes to self-censor is that something that you struggle with at all or do you just get out there and of course like I I feel like being around the the compound media guys like help helps bring me up and I and I hope that I do the same for them like even just today I was like thinking of uh, of like do I send this tweet about about rent like <laughs> it's it's basically like it's a joke that's going to involve like rent and and aids and it's you know socialism and i'm like oh do i tweet it out and then i save it and then i sit on it but um i think i feel like just being around those guys is inspires me to just like say what i think is funny and not worry about getting canceled and also the act of getting canceled gives you a thicker skin and makes you tougher so i i think it's something every comedian needs to go through in order for them you have to like fight to like be yourself you know Mm-hmm. and it's so easy to um slink back like i always think of that like uh gif of uh or gif god i always screw it up of homer simpson like <laughs> slinking back into the bushes it's such an easy time for comedians to do that now because <laughs> oh i don't want to get it's it's just easier to not put yourself out there but i i think i and not that i'm any any big deal but i also think it's empowering and inspiring for just the regular people too and i and i think it's as an entertainer and a comic like we our privilege is in that like we can say what we want and a lot of people can't because they are afraid they'll get fired or lose friends or even for i mean i was talking to aubrey huff a couple months ago and he said that like he was a former mlb like baseball star he said that like people are the, the MLB encourages players not to even follow him on Twitter. So it's like, you can get backlash just from who you follow. So it's oh, insane. Yeah. yeah. Have you faced any of that? Have you ever had a cancellation? Have you been canceled in any way or. Oh, for sure. Like a bunch, like I feel like a, a bunch of different times, but like with different like levels of severity, um, Maybe the first thing that ever happened was when I did a like a, a goofy video. I was up in Utica, New York, which is in upstate New York. And I just was I was calling it like Chrissy's shitty tour of Utica. And I just was like goofing off. And I was because, you know, it was like in terrible shape. And I'm like, oh, look at this property for sale. It's got an outdoor pool. But the outdoor pool was the unfinished foundation that was just collecting <laughs> rainwater. And I'd be like, oh, look at this. This bar, the bartender is probably a hooker. Nothing terribly clever. But then a local Utica radio station picked it up like maybe six months after I had done it because it was a slow news cycle, I guess, over there in Utica. And then <laughs> crazy backlash from the from all the residents of Utica. They were like, oh, my God, how like publicly, how dare you? You're horrible. Like for weeks, this was like steady, maybe six weeks of, of like steady shit from people. And then but privately in my d- DMs, they'd be like, yeah, you're right. We do have a problem with meth. Things did, things- <laughs> We things really were better in the industrial. <laughs> like when you know, I was like, Oh, you're like New York's Detroit and publicly everyone shits on you because they want something to bond together over. It was like my friend Corinne Fisher a long time ago told me to read So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson and that has helped inform 
I was so happy I read it because you realize that it's not about anything that you do. It's about people trying to elevate themselves. So if you're the the big shiny thing that everyone's trying to cancel, that everyone has, that's problematic. It's like, well, good. Now we can all to come together on this and be above this person. Like it's a way, like if everyone's down here and whoop, now Chrissy's up here because she made a bad tweet and everyone's looking at, or even like any celebrity like Chrissy Teigen recently. Um, even though like I've like never liked her, but it, when, when someone's up here and being canceled, it's like, Ooh, we all can see that this person is up here that being talked about. Now it's a way for everyone who's kind of down here. Maybe they want to get some clout. It's a way for them to elevate themselves. Like, look, mm-hmm. Hey, everybody else watch me shitting on this person so that we can bond. And then I can eventually get something out of it. Like I'm on your team because we're all shitting on this person. It's like ultimately a very selfish act and once i yeah. learned that you're like oh it's not about me it's just about it's kind of about these other people and, and it's like humor it's is so uh, yeah it's a mob mentality thing so it was like uh, the first time was over utica another time um i made fun of this like girl comic who had walked off the set at compound media because she was like offended by something gino bisconti said uh and then i came back the next day like put a wig on and pretended to be like an offended sjw and then that got um taken out of context because it's a paywall right so the fans like loved my impression they took screenshots of me in this brown wig like oh my god chrissy is so so funny right so then that gets posted but then she and her fans go oh my god how dare she how dare she uh, like make fun of her. But meanwhile, every year in Brooklyn, there's a, there's this big show called Stick or Treat where we are precisely supposed to make fun of a comic who is bigger than us. Not like Kate Lil and I, I don't know, who knows if she, maybe she, at the time she was bigger than me because she had a five minute or 15 minute Netflix special. Like, I don't know what she's doing now, but um, uh, I have I haven't heard of her, but that doesn't mean much because I don't follow comedy like I used to. The yeah. same, but but yeah. the point of that was is that yeah. an impression got way taken out of context uh and then the fans of compound media were like hey she seems pretty uptight like i can't believe she didn't just stay and talk out her point like i can't believe she got so she's a comedian she got so offended she had to leave that seems strange for a comedian um so then it ended up getting confused. Like people thought that my making fun of her was my uh, like encouraging people or encouraging fans to like send her mean tweets. Basically she claimed she got like rape threats and death threats. Like I never saw oh, any of these. It's just, yeah. I'm like, you're I th- she is someone to me who was using the me too movement for her own um, purposes. You know, I have to kind seen of- so many people like this. Basically, opportunistic con artists who will use any movement or anti-movement and claim victim, do this whole thing where this has become so common, but especially among SJWs, where they do uh, what you just said, where they say, because you talked about me or said something about me or made fun of me or whatever, then I got all these, this, this online abuse, which they never show receipts for, but even if they did get it, it's you didn't call for it. You didn't, you have, there's no, there's no uh, culpability on you for what other people do online. You're putting yourself out there in the public eye. Of course, you're a public figure. You are yeah. putting, you are vulnerable to parody. That is, that you, she's been on TV right. for Christ's sakes. The worst I saw was somebody said, oh, she's real uptight. She could use a railroad spike in the keister. That is not a rape threat. That is some some person on Twitter, probably in a basement, just talking shit. Like, if you yeah. don't have a thick enough skin to be able to deal with, like, haters and trolls, like, maybe you really shouldn't be in showbiz or in the public eye at all because that's... Or in comedy. People are not going to like you, and that is okay. That doesn't mean, like, you have to destroy uh, people who kind of are just pointing out, hey, like... Yeah, it would have been nice if you had stayed on to debate your point instead of like walking off sort of cowardly at the first sign of conflict. Right. Do you think that there's something in comedians 
there's something about comedians that makes them especially vulnerable to social justice ideology, or are they just the same degree of vulnerable to it as everyone else? If they are vulnerable to social justice ideology, it's because they are not making a lot of money. You know, of course, people who are not making a lot of money want more free stuff. And most comics don't make very good money. Most comics like need to have at least one or two other jobs. I mean, I, I'm all about everybody having multiple streams of income, but the comics that tend to not do as well or be angry are the ones that are like not crushing it in terms of like their goals, whatever, their TV credits, their their money. So, of course, they're going to be more prone to like handouts and uh, socialism because they're just... Yeah there's not a ton of money to be made just in like doing coffee shops in Brooklyn. You know, you either have to be on the road or have a podcast like I do or have other projects. And that's the thing is like these, what I call it, these like woke New York or woke Brooklyn comics. They, they sort of put themselves better than performing. (laughs) They put themselves better than the rest of the country because they live in Brooklyn or New York or whatever. So they'll only really maybe perform in New York or in L.A., you know, if there's an opportunity out there or some kind of TV thing. They considered the whole country to be a flyover state. Meanwhile, they wouldn't be able to fill a room in in Cleveland, Ohio or in Delaware because it's just it's tough, of course. But um, yeah, and they it's a disservice because uh, like New York and L.A. are not the whole country. It's your you have a very small window into what people are laughing at if you're just performing in New York and L.A. So I think the the pandemic like really shook that up a lot because the people who put themselves better than performing in the rest of the country found themselves without any work at all. Right. I never thought about that because they're limited to the cities that were under the strictest lockdowns. Yeah. Yeah. Never having toured the places that were still open. So, yeah, I'd never thought about that. The fact that if you're a comedian who only performs in New York or L.A., you're you're in cities that are the most locked down and you maybe are not familiar with places like Texas that remained relatively open. That's really interesting. It was a real switch on the script because uh, it was very easy easy for them to think, oh, New York and L.A. are better than everywhere else. And now it's the opposite is true is like. New York and other are kind of the worst places to be. They're the most, yeah. the least opportunities. Even now, as things open up, it's kind of like, ugh. everybody with money has moved out of New York City. Everybody is, if they had a second home, they're there. And they're not, it's not going to come back until a lot of people are going to start putting their disposable income back into New York City. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I wonder about that. It's the the real estate market here in Texas is is crazy right now. We have yeah. all the all the Californians and New Yorkers are moving to Austin, driving the prices up. And then the Austinites are moving north to Cedar Park, Pflugerville, Georgetown, driving the prices up there. And then the Georgetown, wow. Pflugerville, Cedar Park people are moving north to Salado, d- driving the prices. So it's this trickle up and trickle out effect from all the all the people coming in. It's really interesting. I, Where is I nobody like, moving to? Like, where, yeah. <laughs> um. Where I just moved. I won't name that town. Okay. But I right. You can really keep it secret. A flag. Yeah. I'm sticking a flag in the middle of nowhere. We'll see if people come okay. that far. <laughs> That's what people are doing right now. People are yeah. buying up land on mountains and shit. So, yeah. Yeah. So tell us, how did you get into comedy? I always like hearing these stories of why comedy? Were, were you drawn to it from a young age or? Kind of. Like now I look back and. I was, I was like, I was just, I found myself ending up like on stage, like at church, they had like, I was too young to be in the church play, but I, I like, and I hear stories, like my grandma would say like, yeah, you got up on stage, you were really little, maybe you were four and you had like a paper bag on your hand and you were saying, oh, this is Danny the donkey. And it was before like the actual church play and the other kids who had parts, but I just got up there and they they had to get like the big, you know, big cane and be like, get get the hell off there. And I had like a lot of small roles in my youth, like lamb in the nativity scene, you know, and I was like very good at like crawling on my hands and knees. Uh, (laughs) And, and, and then, um, and, and like funny from a young age, like they'd have these prayer um, papers that you'd be like, oh, let's pray for Henry. He's 
diabetic or but i would draw instead the pastor jumping off the roof of the church like to her death you know and then i would pass that up and then my grandma would be like no you can't and she would just save them all but she like loved them she like loved my little drawings so like the desire to like be out there and of course you know you get positive feedbacks people people laugh at you people laugh at you it's enough to keep going i was a youngest child most youngest children tend to become comics there's like a lot of sort of like qualifiers also youngest children tend to like you know you observe a lot before you you know how your brothers and sisters act the world like you learn more quickly kind of because you know you have all these people telling you at an early age like santa isn't real you just sort of wise up a bit sooner than like if you're a firstborn and uh so it was always like i was i was a funny kid but also i I was constantly hearing as i was growing up that i was misbehaving that i was always doing the wrong thing i was always acting out so there was like that to go with too and as I was growing up, I never felt like I could like voice my feelings or opinions. Like if I, I, Hey, I'm cold, like shut up, put a sweater on, you know, like I never felt like any of my thoughts or feelings were valid. And I, you know, it's just called sucking it up. If if you're, you know, if you're too hot, open a window, stick your head in the fridge. Like, I don't know, like, you know, my parents are both working and it just kind of, you kind of, I, I don't know. I was raised to sort of feel like, nobody wants to hear about your shit so fast forward college right i thought i really wanted to be a reporter i get an internship at dateline in the city i'm commuting from connecticut to new york twice a week for college credit and then i go oh godstone phillips sure is boring this doesn't seem like (laughs) this doesn't seem like the career for me like news people are boring and i'd have to move out to like way out to like a montana and then over the years you move back to like a new york market or like a a bigger market so i was like that seems like time (laughs) that takes a lot of years uh and then i somehow had the idea to reach out to a female writer on conan because conan was still in the city at that time it was like 2004 so I reached out to late night with Conan O'Brien was somehow able to get myself an internship for my, the next year, my senior year, 2005. And that was big for me. I mean, I was still very impressed by like, you know, 30 rock and just being in the city. And I was like, wow. Um, but then I found being like at Conan, like, Oh wow. Comedy people are my people. It just feels better. I wasn't like with Conan, but I was hanging out with the writers a lot. Um, you know, just doing menial tasks, but doing menial tasks around like people with a good vibe and talk to some of the writers. Like it was very exciting. You know, you're walking past the set, like even like the, you know, you're trying to ask everybody questions, but you don't want to be too much of a suck up. And there was even among the interns, so much competition because everyone is dying to be hired. Everyone is dying for that like $20,000 a year production assistant job. That's what everybody wants when they graduate. And it's like, it does feel like a kiss kissing up contest. Uh, And I'm like, I was never great at that. And I always thought, Oh, that's why I didn't get hired after. But even after, while I was at the internship, couple of the writers were like, if you're interested in comedy, you need to get into improv. So I was like, all right, improv, improv. Uh, I was in a little bit, I was in improv maybe a semester during college, but I was kind of not, I don't know if blacklisted is the right word, but uh, the theater director at Fairfield was very like, um, what's the word when you like, don't want to include anybody else. Like she was really partial to theater majors, which I wasn't, Uh, I was a communication major and I was an athlete. So she very much didn't see me as like a viable addition, even though I was like, I was a funny kid in college even then. Um, So I got in for a semester, but then I was deemed like I didn't, you know, have enough loyalty to to the theater world. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't a theater kid. I was, I did one play in high school, but I, you know, I felt it was, it was kind of, they were very much partial to their own people. So when I graduated college, I was very excited to like start doing improv somewhere else. So I signed up with the UCB between the UCB and the magnet theater in New York. I did five years of improv just would go one, one class after another level one, level two, all the way to five or six. And then went to the magnet, same thing. Uh, one through six. Uh, I think I went in that order. Yeah. And I was only able to do that because I'd be working whatever day job every day, nine to five, and then living back home in Long Island. So all my dispendable income was going towards these improv classes. And I was like lucky I didn't have to pay my parents rent. So these classes, which were like $400 a pop, 
every six weeks. I did that for five years. I mean, how much money is that? And I, you know, so I was really like lucky to be able to do that, but I was really committed to it. And I think being an athlete as a kid, like did that dedication and like just being able to practice at something very much carried over to my comedy life because you're just, you're not easily, um, swayed by like rejection you're just used to dedicate being dedicated and working hard at something but and then i realized at it. yeah yeah and i just wanted to like math but i was also fascinated by by the world the people and improv is interesting because there's all sorts of people who do improv theater kids mostly you know arrogant wannabe actors and then also like there's bill from accounting and he just wants to like work on public <laughs> speaking you very much have regular ass adults in there um, so that ends up being a, a fun mix because you have like ass kisser, you know, like someone who's just dying to be in SNL with like Bill who just got divorced and wants to meet women, you know, like it's a real, <laughs> just putting myself back out there, you know, it sounds like an AA room. It is. And improv <laughs> people are very incestuous, like, because you go to your practice and then you're encouraged to go to other shows. And then it's your whole, it's, it's a, like a lifestyle. It's like a cult. It really is. Uh, and there's so much hooking up that goes on in improv. And, uh, but after a while, I was like, oh, this seems kind of tedious. You have to rent a coach. You have to rent a room to practice in. Maybe you get in one practice a week. Maybe you get in one show a week. That's ultimately like not a lot of stage time. Um, I did a one woman show that was really great. It taught me the value of like really rehearsing something. And I did an hour of just me on stage, like six different characters. So it was the frustration from improv, the improv dynamics. And then this one woman show made me realize like, okay, I want to be more autonomous. I want to get more stage time. And then I started doing stand up in March of 2010. Um, and it was still so scary to me because it's just such a different thing. It's just you up there. And then you're like, what am I even going to talk about? Like, I was always kind of situationally funny and with quips and puns and clever. And especially with my family dynamic growing up, all we would do was shit on each other. So I like took naturally to roasting. But that that trend wouldn't come till a few years later. So um, but I was always very good. I feel like my skills from improv very much were transferable into stand up and they help so much when you're a host, when you're doing crowd work. Um, that is a skill that you, I, I feel like you either have it or you don't, or if you don't have it, you got to work really hard and be really present. Cause I find now even seasoned comics, some of them still won't even ever go into the crowd. And I feel like you're just leaving gems out there. Like the audience is like a, uh, like a, like you can mine them for gold. And if you just don't even Try. touch it, I feel like that's, um, that's a wasted opportunity. Yeah. That's so interesting. Well, so, so you started doing stand up around 2010. When did you first, cause the, we, we usually get into on the show, we start talking about, social justice ideology. We come at it from different angles. It, it was my belief system for two decades. When did you first start encountering some of these ideas? Was it in the comedy world? I was absolutely like you. I was a social justice warrior um, in college. My, it was, you know, I went to yeah. liberal arts college as a communication, getting my useless so communications degree, like everybody, like everybody else at that age. And um, yeah, my parents were not, I think, my dad was sort of politically apathetic growing up. He'd always talk about like Ron Paul, but like he wouldn't explain why politics was shitty. He just was very cynical and uh, just like, fuck it all. Like his own guy, um, which I get. Cause he's, you know, he's a landscaper. He worked really hard his whole life. Uh, and I know my mom always voted Republican, but they wouldn't really explain like why. And they wouldn't try to like get any of us kids like, you know, intellectually curious about any of that stuff. So it wasn't until college till like, you know, all my friends and my, honestly, my classes, I was going to be a studio art minor. I had a bad interaction with a teacher. Like it was an installation art class. I was trying to hang something on the fucking ceiling and I broke a lamp and she was like, you're getting an F for the class. And I was like, <gasps> or maybe it was a C. <laughs> I have a C and F. It's the same shit to me. I was like, Chrissy Mayer does not get a C in art. You know, and I dropped the minor, went to women's studies which is like not that many classes, but I was, you know, that was like kind of awakened in me this 
feminism stuff and uh yeah started identifying as a feminist uh my friend was part of the students for social justice club i joined that because i'm like oh this is the right thing to do of course you have to be with the gays of course you have to feel for homeless people of course like you know you have to care about poor people and my college was a jesuit college so they're all about going to fucking ecuador and i don't know what they did over there (laughs) i was just i was too busy you know fucking crushing crushing natty light to uh <laughs> go on any of those <laughs> trips but uh, i know that they were available so it just seemed like oh of course you have to be involved in this and then you kind of identify with the titles and you're like oh this is my crew and and this makes me better than everybody else this definitely makes me better and smarter than my family because they're not talking about this stuff and i'm in college and my professors know more so you you want to um connect with your professors more than you do your parents especially at that point in your life you're just a sponge and you're all about like oh this is college i'm i'm smarter and better for it yes. for this this experience but you have no practical anything um yeah no practical that was experience. very much my yeah it, it there was this sort of arrogance that i adopted that came along with it with my women's studies minor with all the classes I took in in queer theory and it just you're sort of I'm learning this secret knowledge this you know because I'm at this elite school and it's too bad that these bumpkins where I'm from and my my parents and everyone else it was was so so arrogant and looking back now gosh with the wisdom that age gives you and you know, getting older and maybe this happens. I hope it happens with everyone, but the older you get, the more you realize, Oh, I, I really don't know the less, the less, you know, it's like, I know there's so much that I don't know. And, uh, but I think, but I think, I think that's common for everyone, but especially for some reason with this belief system, it gives people this, this gross sort of intellectual oh, superiority, gross arrogance all the while. Yeah. They're in insane credit card debt. They're in insane student loan debt. They, yeah. No one has taught them, nor have they sought out how to learn how to like uh, balance their finances, how to invest, how to clean up after themselves, yeah. how to do your own laundry, how to make your own bed. All of this personal responsibility is completely ignored. All the while you let yourself getting arrogant on like how the homeless are treated. Meanwhile, it's like you're 17. You don't know any homeless people. Like, why don't you learn to like make your own bed first? And yeah, uh, I, it's like it's a crime that that practice knowledge is not instilled in our young adults and the, the fucking critical race theory is you know well now it's, so, i mean the critical race theory was not a thing when like we were in college but uh now it's becoming a thing becoming it's it's trickled down to elementary school and you know i think i was lucky that i only encountered this at college and not at an earlier age because i don't know maybe i would still be in it if it had been instilled in me very young so how did you leave all of that what, what were some of the cracks in your foundational beliefs or how did you start to wake up from that? Um, yeah. And even it carried on after college because I, you know, was living in lived at home for like five years, but, you know, moved out, was living in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, whatever, temping it like NYU always had some job in the city and doing improv. So Um, just, I was never meeting anybody who thought differently than me and start, even when I started doing stand up, my whole crew is other 25 year old liberal girls and guys. So again, like, no, everybody's like really like-minded. Nobody's testing you. Um, nobody's testing your beliefs. And it's like, again, it's easier that way. It's like a club. It's like, Oh, Republicans are gross. And nobody breaks down. Why do you think that? Oh, because my parents were Republican. That's it. Um, so, yeah, I didn't vote for Obama. I think maybe I think the last Democrat maybe I voted for was John Kerry. But then, yeah, well, no, no, it was Obama. I voted for Obama once. Second time, I really had to make it to yoga. So didn't vote at all. And then voted, <laughs> then voted for, I was like, he's probably got this. Then voted for Jill Stein. So even in 2016, I was not the cracks did not really form till 2018 um because i well a part of it was like yeah met my boyfriend in 2014 he helped kind of open my mind up a little bit because 
he came from like the YouTube world of watching like Louder with Crowder, Ben Shapiro, um, not Jordan Peterson is the more I became sort of obsessed with him, but me too. <laughs> he was he was more yeah. rooted in what you call like yeah the intellectual dark web or something like I had heard of Dave Rubin all these people I had just no clue about until the last few years. Um, I think that's so true with like guys. I don't know guys are more. I don't know. It's weird. He was very open minded, so it helped. Dating him helped start to open up my mind, and then it was. It was a couple. It was like a multi-prong thing. It was like finding with comedy, like my sense of humor was like growing away from this like woke leftist perception. Uh, and I also felt like during the time that I was in stand-up where I was like hardcore into like I had, my jokes were like feminist. I was like making fun of guys and that wasn't really getting me anywhere. And it and after a time, it didn't feel good to be like still hitting those same notes. Yeah. Um, and then, so 2018, I think was a really pivotal year because my mom died and I started going on compound media. So it's like her death, all this space opened up in me. It was like, it's just a mind fuck. Right. And then I was like, okay, I gotta start filling it with something. I gotta like do something productive here. So I started going onto compound media doing characters and I just found being around those guys. I'm like, oh, they're, they like everyone's telling dirty jokes. No one's politically correct. Like they're making me like crack up, like double over in laughter. They're so, especially Aaron and Gino, very good at improv. I don't think either of those guys took improv, but they're naturals and their show in hot water is so like improv based and like dirty jokes. It's all the stuff that I love. And I was like, Oh, this is so much more fun. This is so much more fun than like standing on stage with a microphone, like talking about how dumb guys are. Um, yeah, you know what? I went on their show and I didn't know a lot about it beforehand. And that you're right. They had all this kind of improv sort of humor that I'm not used to doing. And, and they're also <laughs> disgusting. They're also showing gay scat porn too. And they'll give you no warning. Either. They'll just be like, oh my God. You know, not for they didn't everybody. show me any of that, but they found some guy who's like, a YouTube hot dog eating contest guy or something. And Frankie McDonald. Yes. Or no. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's like retarded. It, yeah. They love him. It was really funny. Just sort of this juxtaposition of they're asking me serious questions and we're kind of having a serious discussion. And there's just this fun, ridiculous, no point yeah. to it. Just, they're just having fun and throwing that in together. That, that was really, uh, I, I could see how that could be, that could become really fun to try. Cause it's just unexpected. Is that kind of oh, what yeah. improv classes feel like for you? It's just yeah, but well, in improv, there's a lot of exercises um, that are basically the the point of which are to like free up your mind and be in the present moment and to react honestly instead of being in your head about what is funny because oftentimes mm -hmm. like the funniest thing is the most honest thing and you'll find with some stand-ups that are not as successful they're too in their head about what sounds funny yes. and that often comes out hacky it comes out like yeah we've heard that joke a hundred times before um so that's what i appreciated about improv it like it keeps you honest and uh like really in the present moment and it works out other skills like uh, you know, person personifying a coffee pot. Like, what would a coffee pot say if it could talk? Like, well, I've been, I've had a really hard day. This is like my fifth pot. Like, I really hope everybody gets their work done today. You know, it like it frees up your mind. Uh, in fun, silly, goofy, it really uh, feeds your inner child. So that's why I thought it was yes. fun. It's so you good. started doing it's more more like goofy stuff like that, and and comedy shows where people were not self conscious. Yeah. And I found as I got older, like my sense of humor was getting less politically correct. And the stuff that was making me laugh was less politically correct. So it was like the comedy part. And then, of course, the assault on free speech in the last few years, like really activated me into being super outspoken about it. So that it was already happening from a comedy um, position, like and also getting canceled by this other like woke liberal New York comic girl. I was like, aren't we supposed to be on the same side? Like, why are you trying to like? Yeah. Uh, cancel my gigs like shouldn't we all just be focused on getting our own gigs like if I'm not your cup of tea like just move on um so it was like wow. getting attacked from within the community my own sense of humor like progressing away and also I met 
Larry Sharp, I think in 2018 as well, who ran um, for the governor of New York. He's a libertarian candidate. And it was through talking to him that I started to really crack open my political identity. I just yeah. really stopped identifying as a liberal. And he was like, take this test. He's like, he's like, you know, do you feel this? And this just him talking to me and asking me questions like made me realize like, oh, wow, I'm not this is not my identity anymore, which is can be disorienting to people because you're like yes. i'm this like i'm my title because then you don't have to think about it you can just tell people what your titles are yes. i think that's one of the biggest problems with with people with fear of of saying something against a tribe or having an opinion of their own or an individual thought because then it's like they we tend to mistakenly wrap our identity up in all these labels like my I, your identity i don't think should be liberal it's just it's just a way of categorizing what your what the majority of your policy positions are on something is mm. they're liberal. But then we start to think of it as like I am a liberal. It is who I am. Like no, no, oh, it's, it's horrible. Look how yeah. many people now are they identify with liberal, they identify as Democrats, they they refuse to be critical of Fauci. They refuse to to mm. acknowledge the lies in the mainstream media. It's like you're when you're so locked into a position, it keeps you from thinking for yourself. Like that's the biggest enslavement of all. Do you have any political alignment these days that you do you consider yourself a libertarian or are you independent? Probably more or? probably more a libertarian. I may have recently changed my voter registration to Republican just because I was so sick of having the Democrat like ladies show up at my apartment door. I'd be like, how did you fucking find me? But I was just very <laughs> I was very irritated by them showing up all the time. So I was like, I have to change my freaking thing. Um, but who knows? I might change it to libertarian like I. I don't know. I just was like, I was like, it's crazy for me to still be a registered Democrat at this point, which I was yeah. up until like maybe last year or something. So did you find that as you when you realized you were no longer what's called liberal as a, like as an identity? Did you also find that labeling yourself wasn't that important to you anymore anyway? Exactly. And yeah. and there's so many things that happen. It's like, oh, I didn't get what did I get out of identifying with this label anyway? It didn't help my career. It didn't. And it's like once you give up the labels, once you start really speaking your mind and then you notice which of your friends like slough away, fall mm -hmm. away. You're like, oh, God, like it's like it all makes you braver i think because you're not like protected by your group because once the group and the friends yes. start falling away it's a, it's just you and maybe you have a few other friends and like core like my boyfriend and we see we see eye to eye and everything and like which is helpful but like you find more like as your group identity falls away and your friends fall away like then you're truly free to be critical yeah because you're like i'm not disappointing the group i'm not going against the group yeah, I think that I think that is why your comedy is so good because you have that freedom and you're not so constrained as people, and, and not just comedians. I see it all the time. People are just constrained. They self censor. I wasn't a comedian. I worked with a lot of comedians, and I self censored. I saw them self censor. I saw the writers' room on some TV shows self censor, wow. and because of fear, and I think it's the enemy of comedy. It's the enemy of a lot of things, but it's the enemy of comedy. So what is it about you, Chrissy? I was, I'm also interested in people's stories about how they first learned of social justice or, or if they got involved in it, how they got involved in it, how they got out of it. But I'm also interested in what is it that you think makes you able to see through some of this bullshit? Like, why did you wake up? Sometimes when I ask people that question, I'll hear, oh, I have a family member who escaped a communist country oh, yeah. I have there's always different answers. So what do you think about you? There's so many parts of it. Like part of it was seeing the assault on free speech and comedy and then, and, and seeing other comedians like supporting the, the stifling of, of saying whatever you want to say and the certain kinds of jokes. Oh, we can't joke about this group. Oh, we can't joke about this group. And I'm like, well then where does it end? How does this not, I became more activated because I was just like, wow, not everybody is alarmed by this. Like I felt my voice had to be even bigger. And it's like so many steps of like standing up for yourself, which has also been my like a lesson as an adult too. Like growing up, I think I was very, you know, as all kids are, I was imprinted by my mom and just learned my sort of like adult imprinting was like, oh, don't stand up for yourself. Be easy to get along with. 
uh, tiptoe mm-hmm. around people who who get angry easily. My dad, you know, and just learning to avoid conflict. So that's been my like whatever journey lesson as an adult is to stand up for yourself, like yeah. say what you feel. Not that like not that like oh my feelings, but you know what I mean. Like really stand up for what you think is right, which for me was like free speech and comedy and uh getting better and better with dealing with trolls and people trying to cancel you um and 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 you have to just be comfortable on your own you have to be okay parting with the group because i remember in college like yeah i was i joined students for social justice because my roommate was in it and i thought this will be a great way for me to meet boys and we (laughs) We got in a meanwhile, <laughs> like the opposite <laughs> is true. The opposite is true. I should have said like, drop me off at Home Depot, pick me up in three hours. Like I would have had a boyfriend. <laughs> but we got into a van and drove to Georgia. I think we went to Fort. Fuck. Either we drove down to Texas or Georgia. Might have been Georgia. This army base in Georgia. And we went to protest the School of the Americas. I still don't entirely even know what that was, but I was told that they were, that it was a group of American something or other that were, that was killing people. And, you know, I was like, that sounds wrong. Let me get in this van. Who's going? He's cute. I'll be there. And, uh, it was an interesting experience, like being that, that first protest experience and you're there and everybody's got their t-shirt thing set up and their buttons and their stickers and like, what are we protesting again? Okay. This is fun. You know, I didn't tell my parents where I was going. This is kind of exciting. You know, you're doing things by yourself. So I didn't really understand. Like, I just, you know, you're told that something wrong is going on and you need to be here to fight it. And I was like, okay. So did you ever have, I had some similar, I had a similar activist sort of experience in college where I, I went to a dismantling racism training it was one of these early kind of critical race theory indoctrinations. And this one was put on by Amnesty International. And I ended up working for Amnesty International. I ended up doing a lot of anti-death penalty stuff for them in the state of North Carolina. Um, but that anti-racism training, when I look back on that, I think that was a big part of changing the way I thought about things and, and sort of really cementing some of these social justice ideology like beliefs in me like that was when i first heard the new where they try to redefine racism which is very important that they get you to accept this new definition did you have any of those indoctrinations that that you would call that's the only thing i did that i would call explicitly an indoctrination session the rest of it was just like slow boil you know through classes and stuff the things that you're learning but yeah, it was like Did that you- protest, being in the club. It was like pretty light, though. It was like, I think my women's studies minor was influential because you're learning. Like, I, I'll yeah. never forget in the same semester, I had a sports broadcast. I was in a sports broadcasting class. So I was the only woman and all men. I was also in an ecofeminism class for my women's studies minor. So it was all women and one dude. And it ended up being like, <laughs> fuck you to the dude you know like like my takeaway from ecofeminism is it like it is it is a man's fault um that that our resources are depleted that the climate is in shambles everything wrong with the earth is man's fault or the patriarchy whatever like they're for the destruction therefore they're all about consumption Mm -hmm. um and and you're learning about like you know well i have a women like a in English class, we were just reading like women authors and you're like, ah, oh, why shouldn't everyone should be reading these? Why do I need a specialized class on women authors to read women? Meanwhile, it's like as an adult, you can read whatever the fuck you want. You don't need to be in a minor. Like yeah. if you as an adult become intellectually curious, go ahead and get that book for yourself, you know, but you're learning everything from an, from an angle, uh, this like feminist bent, um, and it is also with it's you're in this little exclusive group. Same thing. You feel better and smarter than everybody else. Like we weren't saying we weren't using the word woke back then, but it was there. All the bones what, were there. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so one of the things I wanted to I, I tried to at the end of the episode, sometimes we get people asking us like, you know, with everything that's going on in the world, I'm it's hard to stay positive and this isn't all of our viewers. It's just some, some of the people we've heard from. And so I always like to offer people some positive notes. And I think there's a lot of positive stuff to come from comedy. So do you have any thoughts about like 
why comedy is valuable and and what comedy can offer us even in what what might be considered dark times culturally or nationally or concerning times yeah if comedy is healthy and thriving and allowed to be then that's always a good sign because what is in what is in comedy like honesty like it's like your first you know every time every person has an experience at work or with friends where they've blurted something out just how they feel um may not necessarily be a joke but that gets a huge laugh because you're just you're able to say the honest thing in the moment and uh like that's comedy comedy now especially when times are tough it's like just being able to say the honest thing thing that like a lot of if, if if a comedian is thinking it and feeling it i think comedians largely represent regular people i think the best ones represent regular people that's why you find like, yeah, all right, Dave Chappelle's one of the greats, but like he's really rich and it's hard to get excited about him now. Like uh, same thing with Seinfeld. Like, all right, he was on Seinfeld, he's legendary comic, but like he's not anybody I'm excited to go see because he's not like not that you have to struggle, but he's like he's not down here with the regular people. Like he he's got many <laughs> cars and homes. That's why when he said there was the debate over the summer, like is New York city is dead. And Seinfeld was like, no, it's not. And it was like sent from the Hamptons, you know, it's like, okay, buddy, like you're, <laughs> we're not really all living the same life here. Um, so Do you think, can I ask yeah. you that actually, this is really interesting to me. I've thought about this before having managed comedians and been in that world for a little while. Do you think that, do you think that money, fame, power, do you think these things hinder an artist's ability to, to do really uh, authentic, original art that resonates with the common person? And, and that could be comedy or music or what have you. I think they can, I, but it's not impossible. I, maybe they make it a little bit harder. Like if you have more money, like let's just say you live uh, in a better apartment and you take more cabs instead of riding the subway as much. Okay. So now you're out of touch with what's going on in the subway. Now you're out of touch with walking around New York city. Cause you're taking cabs everywhere. Well, you have a doorman. So you don't know what it's like to just like burrow and, and search for your Amazon package, which is probably stolen. You know, like you don't have anybody shitting on your, on your front stoop anymore. Cause you're in a really nice apartment. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah may, maybe yeah. you have material that's like really hits with rich people it's possible i think you have to money means you just you have to work harder to stay relevant and stay in touch with the people i think you're right i think you have to just work a little harder to stay grounded i really yes. yeah i think i think that was part of what dave Chappelle was doing when he shocked the establishment by leaving his show and moving to a farm in Ohio or somewhere, wherever it was, he moved with his family. And it was sort of that dude's trying to stay grounded and, and, and stay grounded in my opinion, from afar, looking at it, it's like, that's what that appeared to be to me is someone who wants to continue to be a normal functioning human and not become some monster who can't relate to the average man. So yeah, I think you're right. I think you just have to work harder at it. I mean, I, there was one comic I worked with who, it got to a point where I could see the struggle to have things to talk about on stage that other people could relate to, because it, if you just start leaning into all of that, that wealth or that, that the privilege that comes with that, you know, it's, it's sort of, if you're not go, doing any trips yourself to the grocery store, you don't even know how to use an ATM because oh. you have an assistant go to the ATM for you. And you don't know how to set your own oven because somebody does it. For, I mean, you just don't know these things that normal people do. It's like, how do you, how do you relate to people unless you're just making fun of your own inability to function? <laughs> right. Which is, there's such a, a, a paradox about rich kids who pursue comedy. Cause it's like, uh, yes, it is so much easier because you don't have to maintain a day job. You don't have to split your focus. You don't have to like, if your parents can pay for you to live in New York city, well, this is a couple of years ago. Wow. You can pursue it. You can, the sky is the limit. You can go to five mics a day and not work a nine to five because your rich parents are paying your rent, your food, all that. But you have that, like, if you come from money, right. You don't have these experiences of like, yeah, I got locked outside my house a bunch in elementary school and I had to shit in my own backyard. You know, like you just don't <laughs> coming from money can be a hindrance too to writing material, but it makes it, it also makes it easier for you to 
pursue comedy in like an expensive city. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, money can be can be it makes your life easier right but like comedy is about a shared reality and the more money you have the less you share that reality with people yeah I think it's it's easier to still make art that everyone can relate to if your medium maybe is music except for possibly lyrics because sometimes Mm. your lyrics can become a little vapid and innocuous um, but with comedy, you're up there telling stories. Like you said, it's all about relating to the audience. It's all words, which is, which is why it's always good to talk about your family, talk about your kids, like remember, you know, the stuff that a lot of people share experience with. Um, so maybe, yeah, it's just, it's up to that individual, like what their strength is. And like, sure. Even though, even though you might make more money, like you got into comedy cause you're a sense, you're more sensitive and your sense of observation is heightened. So just you got to maybe got to recalibrate what your, you know, where are my strengths lying right now? I don't know. I'm totally rambling, but yeah, no, making sure I, you're still I, connecting. We're just thinking out loud. I like thinking. I, I like thinking in real time. Or you know, sometimes we do that. Um, it makes me wonder if maybe woke comedy is is good for lazy people who don't have anything to relate to the audience about. Cause then you're just up there sort of preaching like sexism is bad guys. Let me do some oh, jokes. Yeah. About you're sexism. just regurgitating what you heard on CNN the night before for 15 minutes before you went to bed. Like I, uh, someone mentioned, I think it was Tim pool who mentioned this this week on a broadcast. I think he was with Jack Murphy. He said, Bill Burr went on, I think it was Rogan very recently and said, ah, I don't get involved in politics. I just turn the TV on once a week and I do whatever it tells me, which I could see was getting Tim like really riled up and mad. And I'm like, and then the discussion was like, yeah, that's most people. Um, and Jack was saying most people don't have the luxury of like consuming a lot of news and making sense of it. Most yeah. people are, I mean, Bill Burr probably should be a little better than that, but I would say most people are just like working on their, are they making money? Are they providing for their family? Most people don't have three hours yeah. a day to be looking at news and making sense of it. And uh, so you, you can cut the average bear a little bit of slack, but I think at this point, some things are so obviously like, okay, we're being lied to uh, <laughs> in so many ways. And well, then hey, Bill Burr's, if that was a joke that he was telling, it was a very good joke though, because it hit, it hits right. streets. Like you said, that is what most people do. They turn the TV and they do what it tells them. So I don't know. I didn't hear that joke, but to me, it was like, oh yeah, he's uh, he's onto something there. And I think right, yeah. most people don't have time to condense. It's it's sort of we used to have these different trusted sources. You know, like the legacy media. I trusted the New York Times long past the point at which I should have. Um, there, there, there are places that I can't believe I used to give them the degree of trust that I did. And, and you can also sort of forget things. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but in the buildup to the Iraq war, I was very, you know, I hated George W. Bush. I was at all the protests. I was at all the anti-war protests. I was really paying attention. And I saw the way that the media, that CNN in particular helped sell us the war. And then it's like, I forgot that. Once somebody was in there that I liked, yeah. like Obama, then I started trusting CNN again. Oh, yeah. You, it's so easy to trust CNN. I was the same way I trusted CNN because they're the smarty pants brand, just like New York Times. It's the smarty pants brand of newspaper, the smarty pants brand of of like of legacy media. It's like they're polished. They say big words. They're smooth talkers. They look good. So of course they must be right. Cause they're better. It's the same yeah. shit that you're sold with college. You know? Yeah. It's like you sound and look a certain way. Therefore you're the authority. And that's yeah. like my whole thirties has been about uh, like un- unraveling that. Unlearning that. That's interesting. Yeah. We're going to put your links up in the description so people know where to follow you, but just quickly, can you tell people where to find you online if they want to follow your work? And what are your shows that are coming up? Oh, yeah. Uh, follow me on uh, Twitter at Chrissy Mayer, C-H-R-S-S-I-E-M-A-Y-R. Follow me on my new Instagram. First one got nuked at Chrissy Mayer Pod, P-O-D. Um, my podcast, the Chrissy Mayer Podcast, is on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and The Wet Spot, which is my um light and sassy sex dating relationship show is on compound media Mondays at 7 30 PM Eastern. 
Um, I think that's it. Oh, yes. And I'm going to be um, at Hilarities in Cleveland Thursday, June 3rd. Uh, and then I'll be at the Dojo uh, in Morris Plains, New Jersey, June 12th. And then the Pat Garrett Amphitheater in Bethel, Pennsylvania, June 18th. And more shows and dates are coming. Um, so just check out my website for details. Awesome. Why did your first Instagram get nuked? Mm-hmm. I, I think I posted something not state approved. I think I posted something that was anti-jab or I just got report, reported a lot from Jan 6. It's like a either one wow. or both of those. Yeah. And they, did they give you an official reason? No, just... no warning, nothing. It just was gone. Yeah. Wow. You know, so our unsafe space Twitter account, we got permanently banned in January and it took them two months to tell us what to give us a reason. And then the reason they gave us was bogus. They said, we're trying to evade a ban and we appealed and we haven't heard yet. It was, it's almost June. We still haven't heard. Uh, I hear about this all the time, increasingly from more and more people who are getting censored or getting kicked off platforms. And, and the, the thing that freaks me out is that we're starting to just get used to it and be like, Oh yeah, you got banned. Oh, well, you know, like it's normal. Like, right. Cause you just hear it yeah. all the time. I mean, maybe it is good. Maybe it's a sign that like, okay, there are enough alternatives. Like it's not the end all, like your one, your one platform is not everything. Like, okay, well, yeah. I'll just have to find something else. Cause that is kind of easier than, like you said, going through the, the multi, yeah, the rigmarole of, of a, them trying to get an answer out of them when they're not trying to give anybody answers. Yeah. Plus I think, I had a friend who she, she's an artist, her Instagram, she lost it because of a, a, a spammer or, or a fish, a phishing attack. Someone contacted oh. her, pretended to be from Instagram, said that, that there was a problem with her account, got her password or what, what have you, and then logged in and deleted her whole account. And so she lost, she had tens of thousands of followers and lost all of them <gasps> and you know, and then the embarrassment too of being fish, you know, catfished like that. But what she learned from it, and and I, I really think this is a great lesson. Is is sometimes you can put. I think we can put so much. We can forget. We can forget what our real goals are, and we can put all this meaning in something in like a the number of followers, the number of subscribers, or this thing yeah. that I have. You know, this thing, this YouTube, this platform that I have. And then oh yeah, put, yeah. If you lose, you spend it, years. Happens? You spend years right. working on it and gaining followers. Like it did suck. I had thirteen thousand five hundred well, yeah. followers on Instagram, and, it's, and you're like, oh man, okay, that was helpful for selling tickets to shows. Um, yeah. But what are, what are you gonna do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And then you survive it, and you're like, whoa, maybe that I had too much power in that thing, and and so maybe you have less fear over losing it again. It know? is good because it's like yeah. everything is temporary. Like it's nothing is. Uh, we could all lose our, all of our accounts tomorrow. So if you're not yeah. hanging your worth on that, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so too. Chrissy, I really have enjoyed talking with you. I've enjoyed getting to meet you. I'm a big fan. Yay. I hope everyone checks out your site and goes to a show when they when you are in town, goes to see you live. I'm a so, big fan of you too, Carrie. Yeah, when we were in Austin, everybody was like, you guys look related. <laughs> I was like, thank you. That's such a compliment because you're beautiful redhead. By the way, I forgot to tell you happy, was it yesterday, Redhead's Day? Redhead's Day, yeah. I'm yeah. so behind. I got to get a, another dye job. Like redhead, it's like you're, it's the fastest color to dull out. I mean, unless you're a real redhead and those guys are freaks. No. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Well, well, thank you, lady. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks, thanks for, for having me, Carrie. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning.
This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. They are also spreading vicious lies about me. I am human just like you. Insert localized idiomatic greeting. Individual sovereignty is highly contagious. Good parents keep their children regularly vaccinated. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.